I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 105. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 503. We'll be reading the entirety of this psalm together this morning. But before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Lord, we acknowledge that you are the great King who rules and reigns on high, the one in whom there is great purpose in all things, the one who is immovable, eternal, unchangeable in all of your ways, and what comfort that brings to us as your children. And may your Holy Spirit send, by virtue of the finished work of our Savior, to dwell within our hearts. May he enable us, by your kindness, to draw greater encouragement, comfort, and direction from the truth of your word this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. But the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, and his neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. The land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night, 
They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of, his peop- of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The word of our God, you may be seated. And when we think of the book of Psalms, we probably think of a collection of hymns or songs, both used in private and public worship. And certainly this is how the Psalms have been used throughout church history. Or perhaps we think of the Psalms as prayers. In that sense, they help us to formulate the content of our own prayers and help us understand the disposition of our own hearts as we bring such prayers to the Lord. And this is another great way to use the Psalms. But we could also think of the Psalms as instructive in nature. We could think of the Psalms as God's counseling manual for the soul, a counseling manual for the believer in Christ. And in this counseling manual, we find words of comfort for the brokenhearted, for the discouraged or for the faint of heart, for the one who might be lonely or weak, or even words of correction for the rebellious as his heart is exposed and he has shown areas of inconsistency within his life. You've probably heard before John Calvin's wonderful assessment of the Psalms. And even if you've heard this before, I think it's worth considering again. Calvin says that the Psalms are an anatomy of every part of the soul. There is not an emotion of which one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are inclined to be agitated are addressed here in the book of Psalms. And as we think about the sufficiency of God's word, What Calvin is getting at is the sufficiency of the Psalms as God's counseling handbook for the soul. That there is nothing that you will experience in this life in the inner man that is not addressed here in this shepherding and pastoral book of the Psalms. Whatever trial you might be going through, whatever disappointment might still be weighing upon your mind and heart as you enter into this new year, Whatever hardship might be lying ahead for you in the weeks or months ahead, I think it's safe to say that we all need comfort. And we all need the comfort that only the word of the Lord can bring. Because without the word, as Calvin says, all we're left with is inward agitations. But with the word, by his grace, we might learn more and more to fix our gaze upon our great king and upon that heavenly home that awaits us at the end of this age. So what is the comfort that we find here in this psalm in particular, in Psalm 105? Well, first, as we think this morning about where we find this psalm in the context of the Psalter, we find it placed among other psalms that exalt God as king. And so our first point this morning is the comfort of our God the one who is king. 
Now, if like me, you grew up in the church, you're probably accustomed to thinking of the Psalms as individual, somewhat isolated prayers or hymns. And certainly within each Psalm, there is a self-contained thrust and focus and one or several perhaps attributes of the Lord that are given attention to and highlighted within those Psalms. But within that, many have assumed that the way in which we find the Psalms in their final format is just the result of a haphazard construction that materialized over the course of several centuries. But there have been many insightful things written by Old Testament scholars in recent times to help us see that the structure, the order in which we find the Psalms is very intentional. And there is an actual flow to the book, just like we find a flow in every other book of Scripture. And so, for example, Psalm 105 is found in book four of the Psalter. And the focus throughout book four is upon God himself as the great king who is the dwelling place of the children of Israel. Now just think about how important a secure dwelling place is. A dwelling place in which you are living under the authority of a faithful, trustworthy, powerful, yet wise and loving benevolent authority. You might sort of mentally transport yourself back several millennia to when this psalm was composed. It would be a very hostile and unstable world in which a secure dwelling place under the authority of a great king would be an extremely valuable possession. You might think of times in your own life in which you have moved to a new community now, there are several families here among us who are new to this area of central Florida. And along with that relocation can come with it sort of that feeling of displacement, at least for a time. And in a sense, that's to be expected, but not just for those who have moved recently, but for all of God's people throughout this earthly life. In a sense, there is to be this restlessness because we are passing through this present age on toward our heavenly home, that final resting place. And of all of the benefits that await us in that heavenly abode, it is the living God himself who is our dwelling place. He is our ultimate treasure. He is our heart's delight. He is our lasting comfort, for he is our reigning king. And we'll see this more in a moment when the psalmist reflects upon the history of his people, the children of Israel. But for generations, they knew firsthand this experience of displacement. For hundreds of years, they had no place to call their home. And even when they were given the land of promise as an inheritance, because of their faithlessness, they were sent into exile. But no matter where they might live, no matter where they might sojourn, even in that period of exile in the land of Babylon, the Lord is their king. He remains upon his throne as the sovereign one who rules over all circumstances, the sovereign one who directs each of their steps, the great king who has wonderful purpose in all things. And because of that, there can be confident hope in all circumstances. Now, there's been some debate as to when this particular psalm was composed, and while we can't know with absolute certainty, 
the psalm seems to mirror the historical events that we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. In that chapter, David has been established as king, and he goes about, sets about to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city of Jerusalem. And on that most wondrous and joyful event, he composes a beautiful psalm of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And there are contents of that portion of scripture in First Chronicles 16 that very much resemble what we read here in our psalm. It will be a wonderful exercise for you in the coming week to read both of those texts alongside one another. Now, what I find interesting about the reign of King David is that in spite of all of his moral failures, which we know were significant in his life, he is the only one who is called a man after God's own heart. Now, how can that be? How can such a weak man be commended so highly? Well, I think it's because David, in the end, is a seeker of God's grace. He is a man who repents of that great sin against the Lord. And there is a desire on his part for the name of the Lord to be named, to be known. And so his concern, you see, as king is not to elevate himself or his own monarchy, drawing attention to the self, but at the end of the day, he recognizes that he is where he is only because of the grace and kindness of God. And that while his reign will come to an end, it is the reign of the Lord that will continue unaffected for all of eternity. Kingdoms and nations of this world will rise and fall, but our God remains forever. His kingdom is unshakable. And those who are his citizens, who belong to that kingdom, have a status of membership in that kingdom that is never in doubt. And so even in the most significant of trials, the sovereign lordship of our great king can bring comfort to us. And because he is the great king, there is always, regardless of circumstances, cause to praise his name. And one of the few Hebrew words that we probably all know, maybe without you even knowing that you know, is the word hallelujah, which is a combination of two Hebrew words that translated mean praise the Lord. Now, as familiar as those words might be to us, We actually only find that phrase 24 times in the Old Testament, exclusively in the book of Psalms, with a predominant concentration in Psalms in this portion of God's word in book four. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually takes the last line of Psalm 104 and brings it down into the first line of Psalm 105. And so this psalm is bracketed by this declaration to praise the Lord. And so hallelujah is just that, both a declaration, an exclamation of that which is true, that the Lord's name is to be praised, and it is a command. It is a call to worship. And the only place in the New Testament that we find that word hallelujah was in our call to worship this morning from Revelation chapter 19. And it's there that this ascription of praising the Lord is directed toward the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. 
He is praised because of his wondrous power. He is the exalted king who sits on high and who is bringing justice on that final day of judgment. And so this is the first thing, really, that brings us comfort. And we can spend so much more time dwelling upon the reality of God's kingly reign. But let's go on and notice how this reality of God's reign translates into the hearts of his people in the form of thanksgiving and gratitude. If we were to put this in the form of a question, how should the kingly reign of God move his people to respond? And so this is our second main point this morning, comfort through thanksgiving. And so because of the fact that our God reigns as king, look at how we are to respond to this reality in verses one through five. Call upon his name and sing praises to him. Speak of his wonderful deeds and tell of his wonderful works. Glory in the name of the Lord and rejoice in him as you seek him. Look to his wonderful strength and draw comfort from his ever-present faithfulness. And so all of these exhortations in the form of commands in these first five verses all begin with a posture of thankfulness. And so we call to him, we speak of his name, we glory in him, we look to him for strength because we are thankful and our hearts are filled with gratitude. The Puritan William Cooper put it like this, thankfulness is the worship we owe God for all that we have and all that we are. And who are we? But image bearers of the living God. And the rebellious against him, saved by his mercy. And what do we have but new life in Christ Jesus? The Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee of that life that is to come. And we have the confidence and comfort of eternal rest that awaits us. Our father in the faith, Dr. David Pallison, calls thankfulness one of humility's core instincts. I spent some time this past week thinking about what a wonderfully compact statement that is from Dr. Powlison, that thankfulness is one of humility's core instincts. Some of my core instincts are not at all commendable. And just when I think that I'm making progress in the Christian life, it seems as though some minor irritation or inconvenience reveals a heart that is far from mature as I instinctively respond in a horribly self-centered way. But as Powelson puts it, to the one who is truly humble, thankfulness is the instinctive response. And I think that really gets at why thankfulness and why gratitude can be such a challenge for us. Because instead of humility, we are oftentimes filled with a sense of entitlement, as though we deserve something different in life, something better in life, as though we feel justified in displaying that displeasure toward others. And so a humble heart that responds in gratitude helps to strengthen our relationship with the Lord. Thankfulness reminds you that everything is from the hands of your heavenly Father, Thankfulness reminds you that you live your life before the presence of the Lord and that he is with you always. 
Thankfulness helps you to be God-centered in your outlook on life rather than self-centered or problem-oriented. Thankfulness helps you to be mindful that you are not shaped or defined by your circumstances. Thankfulness helps to guard your heart from doubting the goodness of God, questioning his purposes, or distrusting his love for you. A thankful heart keeps you humble, recognizing that God is working his wondrous, though oftentimes mysterious, purposes in your life. Thankfulness helps you to rest in the Lord. And so thankfulness helps you to respond according to those exhortations that we find at the beginning of this psalm. Now, I'm not a big fan of bumper stickers. If you have a bumper sticker, that's fine. There's no, thus saith the Lord, you shall not have a bumper sticker. But I don't like the ones that tend to sort of summarize people's philosophy or ideology or religious convictions or something along those lines. The one that I dislike the most is one you've seen, I'm sure, the one that simply reads coexist. That's made up of all of the different symbols of the major world religions to spell that word. I think a better one, if you were to have a bumper sticker, would be gratitude and grumbling with a circle and a line through them because they cannot coexist peacefully within the same heart. There might be little things that we grumble about each day, from the weather to the traffic patterns to our teachers and classes, our job responsibilities, our difficult neighbor or family member. But what grumbling is, you see, is a proud posture that flows from a heart that tends to erode thankfulness instead of the grateful disposition that I ought to have before the Lord. If we tether that inward disposition of our hearts toward the things of this world, that is a most unstable pursuit of life. Instead, it is the eternal weight of glory of our inheritance in Christ Jesus that gives us hope that feeds our humility, and that leads us to respond in gratitude and thanksgiving. So how does the psalmist then help us to go about cultivating such a heart of gratitude and thankfulness? Well, it's through the covenant promises of the Lord. And this is the third thing that we see in the psalm. The covenant promises of the Lord bring comfort. We see this in verses 7 through 11. Look again at verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. And so as the Lord who administers justice, he remembers his covenant forever. And the key word, I think, to focus upon here for a few moments is this word, remember. Remembering it in Scripture is not mere cognitive recall, but remembering implies that you do something when it is brought to memory. It doesn't mean a whole lot to say to your friend, I remembered your birthday after it's a day late. I'm sorry, Adam. (laughs) I didn't do anything about it. I didn't say anything about it on that day, but I remembered it. Well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But that remembrance moves you to action. 
Sending a note, a card, taking your friend to lunch, expressing in some way your appreciation for your friendship. It's something, in other words, that is active. In Exodus chapter 2, the children of Israel are enslaved in the land of Egypt, and they cry out from their pain and sorrow and hardship, and the Lord remembers his covenant promises, and that remembering moves him to work toward their redemption. In verse 8, the Lord remembers the everlasting nature of his covenant to usher his people into the land of inheritance. And so everything else that we find in the rest of the psalm is about how the Lord goes about fulfilling that promise, bringing about in action, we might say, the remembrance of that covenant made with Abraham. Now, here is something I think that's very important about this psalm, that while the focus of this psalm is upon the Lord God, who remembers and fulfills his covenant promises, God's people are to mirror the Lord in remembering. We see this in verse 5, remember the wonderful works of God. You see, the things that we choose to remember about the past have significant impact upon our present. And this is not at all to minimize what someone may have experienced in their past, but we can look at our own time and see the rise of the number of counselors, of therapists, those who help people deal with past trauma of hardship, betrayal, or abuse. For some, the remembrance of those things can be quite troubling, and it can feel at times as though it is life-dominating. But what the psalmist is advocating is that we actively work to fill the mind and heart with the remembrance of God's faithfulness. One Old Testament scholar puts it like this, the whole of redemptive history can be understood from the perspective of a developing redemptive memory by which the people of God meditate upon the progression of his divine works and respond in thanksgiving and praise. For his part, God remembers his people and the promises that he has made to them so that he might draw them into his glory forever. So what are then some of the things that we should remember? How can we develop this redemptive memory in our own lives? What works of the Lord should we meditate upon and draw comfort from? Well, that brings us to the next and final section of the psalm as we read about God's covenant promises as they have worked themselves out in history. And this is our fourth point this morning the comforting evidence of God's covenant faithfulness. The comforting evidence of the faithfulness of the Lord. We see this in verses 12 through 44. And so what the psalmist does here is he looks at these key points in redemptive history, and then he gives thanks to the Lord for his covenant promises and his faithfulness as it has been revealed at these various stages of Israel's progression from their beginning to ushering into the land of promise. And so there are four eras or four periods of history in which God's faithfulness is made evident. 
his unchanging nature and his unchanging covenant of grace. First is the period of the patriarchs. We see this in verses 12 through 15. The psalmist recalls God's covenant that was initiated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though they were few in number and inconsequential in the eyes of the world, though they were nomads with no place to call their own, living in a world of hostility and danger, and though the Lord protected them in spite of such things, even their own weakness. Abraham, you might remember, lies to Pharaoh in Egypt, telling him that Sarah is his sister. And then he commits the same lie later to King Abimelech. Both times the Lord intervenes and protects the integrity of the covenant of promise. Isaac favors his son Esau over Jacob, sowing seeds of discord and division within the family, but God remains faithful. Jacob deceives his father Isaac and steals his brother's birthright. These are not at all commendable figures who could boast in their own achievements as though salvation is of their own merit. The Lord makes it clear in Deuteronomy 7 that they were made recipients of his grace because the Lord set his love upon them. Sovereign election, unconditional grace, no place for boasting in our own salvation. And the next period of Israel's history then shifts to the life of Jacob as Israel transitions to the land of Egypt in verses 16 through 22. The psalmist here goes on to reflect upon this stage of development as the Lord sovereignly directs everything on the stages of world history. He is the one who brings famine upon the land. He is the one who works in spite of his brother's hatred to send Joseph ahead of them to the land of Egypt. And though he was sold as a slave and kept in shackles, the Lord was working in all of these details to preserve and elevate Joseph to that position of leadership. And the psalmist captures the hardships of Joseph's life full of trials with intense suffering. But God is faithful as he directs these events throughout the world and guides the details of Joseph's life to the preservation of the nation of Israel, all for the glory of his name. And Joseph, you'll remember, comes to rest in the reality of God's goodness toward the end of his life as he is reconciled with his brothers telling them that what they meant for evil, God meant for good, the saving of many. And then the next stage of Israel's history was in the land of Egypt in verses 23 through 36. The Lord blesses the children of Israel, causing them to be fruitful and multiply. And though Egypt hates them, we read in verse 25 that this too is part of the Lord's sovereign purpose. We read, The Lord turns the hearts of Egypt to hate his people and deal craftily with them. And so God is working through this period of great trial to magnify his name among the nations of the world. Moses and Aaron were chosen leaders appointed by God, both from the tribe of Levi, chosen not because of some inherent attribute within, but again, grace is evidence. And the Lord then displays his power over the nation of Egypt in pouring out the ten plagues upon that land. And while not every plague is mentioned here in this psalm, and the order that we find them in the psalm is a little different than how they 
flow out in the narrative of the book of Exodus, the psalmist is capturing in poetic format the sovereignty of the Lord over the spheres of the sky and the water and the land. These plagues of the Lord God are an assault against the false gods of Egypt. The Egyptians worship the pantheon of gods, but the Lord defeats them without effort at all, for they are impotent one after the other. And all of this, of course, culminates in the death of the firstborn, though Israel is spared through the substitute of the Passover lamb. Egypt no longer wishes to hold Israel in enslavement, but drives them from their midst and sends them out with plunder. And that brings us to the final stage of Israel's history that's recorded in verses 37 through 44, from slavery to the land of Canaan. And here, the wonderful blessings from the hand of the Lord are highlighted. Silver and gold are given to Israel from the Egyptians as they are glad for them to depart. There is this definitive break from that period of enslavement as they will never return to such status. And they venture out into the wilderness. And as they do, the Lord's faithfulness continues to be evident among them. There's the cloud of covering by day to shelter them from the heat of the sun and to provide direction on where they should go. There's the pillar of fire by night to give them warmth on those cold desert evenings and to continue to direct their steps. There's the provision of food, of quail and manna in abundance, that bread from heaven. And there is water from the rock which flows plentifully. And all of this is given from the hand of the Lord to a nation that now numbers in the millions. And all because of his covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Truly, the Lord remembers. And as you think about each of these periods of Israel's history, there are certain themes that we find in each one of them. First, there is hardship and trial. From wandering and displacement to the famine upon the land to Joseph being taken in shackles to Egypt to the hatred on the part of the Egyptians and enslavement of the entire nation to the trials that come in the wilderness even after their redemption from slavery. But the second theme that we find in each period is the fact that it is the sovereign Lord who is behind all of these things. He watches over them in their wanderings. He is the one who brings famine upon the land. He is in control even of Joseph's enslavement down to Egypt. He is the one who turns the heart of Egypt against his people. And he is the one who directs them into those difficult years of wilderness wanderings. But there is a third theme in each period which is equally vital. God is faithful. He remembers his covenant of grace, and he is merciful and kind and full of wonderful purpose. Rick Phillips remarks that he proves his covenant faithfulness by delivering through trials, not from trials. He proves his covenant faithfulness through affliction, not from hardship. And so you see, the value of this psalm is that this history is our history. For if we rest in Christ alone, by faith alone, for our salvation, 
And the scriptures say that we too are children of Abraham, children of the covenant of promise. And the pattern that we see reflected in the history of God's people is the same pattern that we experience in our own lives. Don't be surprised by suffering and hardship for the Lord is working and he will remember his covenant promises forever. Don't draw your identity from your present struggles. Don't draw your identity even from the future hardships that may come, but know the promises of God. Trials create humility, which should cultivate gratitude. God is faithful, tenderly working. And the application of all of this to our own lives can be seen in the last verse, in verse 45. Keep his statutes, observe his law, praise the Lord. You see, the way that we praise the Lord is we give ourselves to him in obedience. We give our lives to him in consecration, in service. Our Savior died for us, and so we now long to live for him. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, the one who loves me will keep my commandments. He who keeps my commandments shows that he is the one who loves me. And as we close and as we prepare now to come to the table of the Lord, listen to this wonderfully pastoral instruction from John Calvin. Take time to consider, reflect upon the wondrous blessings that are yours by sovereign grace. It is good to reflect upon the adoption as God's children and all of the benefits that come with that adoption. God is not only the sovereign ruler over all, But he is your heavenly father, and you, as a beloved child of the living God, can live joyfully and confidently in his hands. Amen.